Well, today we do want to talk about one of those hot button issues of our day, and that is abortion. And what should our response as believers be? And I love how Dr. Brown put it. Um, really is convicting. Like, listen, if you're asking, if you're asking uh, churches and pastors to give just an opinion on maybe a political candidate or some preferences that aren't in Scripture, then I'm out. I have no use and no interest for that. Um, however. When we see the hot button issues of our day, yes, they're political issues, but when we see that it's far more than that, that it's a moral issue, it's a biblical issue, then we need to speak into those things. Because ultimately, if we truly believe that God exists and that his word is true, then if God has spoken, that is our authority. And we as Christians need to know, what does God's word say on the issue? How should we respond to some of the arguments that are being pushed against a pro-life view? And, and we need to be equipped as believers, not to win arguments, but to win people. And what we find is, and what I've found with just even in my own life on, on certain issues, and what I found other people have commented to me, that sometimes it starts with really examining our own worldview of why we believe something. And when that starts to crumble, then we see, okay, well, what is the truth? And that is really, really the, the goal today is, is twofold. One, if maybe you're on the fence with, should you be pro-life? Look, I don't want to just presuppose when I preach that everybody automatically agrees with me. I don't want to just live in an echo chamber where I'm only speaking on things that I know that everyone agrees with. I think that maybe there are people on the fence. Maybe those watching online, you have questions about, about this. And maybe there's arguments that you've heard that seem convincing. Well, so first and foremost is to convince you of that the pro-life position is not just biblical, but it's moral, it's scientific. And of, again, that comes under the authority of scripture. That's ultimately where our authority comes from. But then also, if you're here and you say, why are you even speaking about this? Like we're on board, we agree. Well, I hope that we have a desire to engage in conversation, the people around us Again, not in an arrogant way, trying to just win an argument, but trying to win that person. And so the goal is twofold. The goal is twofold. One, for those that are on the fence on the issue, to show you biblically um, how that this is a position we should take. But then also for those that do agree that we would be better equipped to be able to have these conversations. Because let's just face it. This isn't going away. This is the culture in which we live. And then ultimately, or thirdly, I should say, maybe you're here and you've had an abortion. Maybe you're here, you're a man, and you've been responsible for talking a woman into having an abortion. Maybe you're watching online and that's just where you're at. And that is really the third goal is to show that there is true hope in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ that Satan wants to bury people, bury you, bury me with maybe guilt of any sin in the past. But yet through Jesus Christ, we find forgiveness, but also through Jesus Christ that through the spirit of God, we see genuine change in our life It not just changes how we live. It starts with changing how we think and how we view these issues. 
But in case you've been living under a rock and haven't really seen what's going on in our culture, just so you know, this is a hot button issue today in our, in our culture. So how should we respond to some of the arguments that we're seeing today in our culture? Well, first of all, I want to look at really the biblical case for pro-life. I want to start with reading from the book of Proverbs, though. The wisdom book. If you have your Bible, please turn there. We'll just look at a couple verses here in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse number 11 says, if thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, behold, we knew it not. Doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, does he not know it? And shall he not render to every man according to his works? Here we see in the, the book of Proverbs, it gives an admonition that we have a responsibility to protect those that are, that are, are moving and marching forward towards death. And those of us, those of us that believe in a, that have a pro-life view and position, that is absolutely what we believe is happening. Now, understand this. So maybe you're here and you're not convinced of a pro-life argument. Maybe you're watching online. You're not convinced of a pro-life argument. Before we go even any further, and again, my goal is to convince you of that biblically today and scientifically, but surely I would hope those that don't have that position would at least understand and appreciate those of us that truly believe the baby in the womb is an actual human, that it is an actual person. Surely you would understand our passion and zeal for trying to protect that person in the womb. I would sure hope so. Even if you don't agree with our position, I would sure hope that you would understand why we are passionate about it. And we have a responsibility. We're going to talk about some of the arguments that come against, some of the arguments that we need to be prepared for. One of the things, though, I'll get a little ahead of myself here, is why do you care? Hey, men, why are you speaking out against it? Just shut up. But actually, we have a moral responsibility to speak up. That theory has actually been tried in history. And when, when slavery was trying to be abolished, that was the same argument. The same argument that those that thought you could have slave, that was their same argument. You don't want a slave? You don't like slavery? Well, don't own one. You don't have any? Don't speak into it. That was the same argument that's been tried in history. But we look back on that and we think, how could people be so blinded on something that was clear as a moral evil? We actually have a responsibility to speak up. But really, the question is this. The question comes down to, is that baby in the womb? Is it an actual baby? Or is it just as some proponents say, it's a clump of cells or it's a fetus? That's all it is. It's not an actual person. Is that, is that argument correct? Or which one is it? Because how we answer that really is important as we move forward in the argument. Well, let's see what biblical, what does God's word say about that baby in the womb? 
What is God's word? Does God's word speak into that? Well, in the book of Judges, chapter 13, here the angel of the Lord is coming to the parents of Samson. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Samson um, in Judges. He's kind of one of the more popular um, Bible characters that maybe you learn about or read about in Sunday school. But Samson is going to be born. He's going to deliver God's people Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. So it's interesting because in Judges chapter 13, verse 2, it says, There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. So his, his, Manoah's wife couldn't have children. It says, But the angel appeared to the woman and said, Behold now, you're barren and you, you're not having children. But he says, You're going to conceive. You're going to conceive. He says, You are going to bear a son. You're going to have a son. He says, Now, therefore, beware, I pray thee. Don't drink strong drink, or, nor wine, nor strong drink, and eat of any unclean thing. For he says, you'll conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Here we see the angels appearing to Manoah, to his wife, who couldn't have children. He said, you're going you're gonna to have a son and he says he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to take this Nazarite vow and this baby from the womb. And by the way, we can look at so many instances. We're just going to look at a couple in Scripture today. But so many instances where you see that God's word, God's word says clearly that that, whatever it is in the womb, is an actual person. It's a, it's a baby. In fact, in Exodus chapter 21 there's um where god's giving his law to his people there's a case that comes up a scenario that talks about if men are fighting and if 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 a woman is injured during this and this woman is with child and this woman has the baby and if 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 the baby dies he says like it's going to be life for life now there's not extreme clarity. Some try to say, well, it's talking about the woman, not the baby. It does seem, though, in that passage, which, by the way, by the way, in our Western society, this is where we have, where that's where the law comes in of if a pregnant woman is murdered, they call it a double, double homicide. That comes actually from God's law, from God's word. So we see another instance that what is in the womb is actually a baby. And then in the New Testament, in Luke chapter number one, in Luke chapter number one, this is uh, the angel is talking to, to, to Mary and then talking about um, Elizabeth, who's going to have a child. So in Luke chapter number one, it refers to the baby in Elizabeth's womb. John the Baptist refers to the babe in the womb as a child, as a child. And what's interesting, the very next chapter, Luke chapter two, when the angel is pronouncing the news to the shepherds of Jesus' birth, and he says, you'll find the baby uh, that's wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in the manger. It's actually the same Greek word in Luke two as in Luke one, talking about the baby in the womb, and the baby that has been born, the baby that's come out of the womb. So we see here, scripturally speaking, that God views that what's in the womb as an actual baby. But here's the thing. 
it's not only a biblical case, but also scientifically, there, it's irrefutable that from the moment of conception that that baby has human DNA. That's an irrefutable fact. It's irrefutable, scientifically speaking. Now, it's got human DNA, and I make that distinction because sometimes people, they think they come up with these really clever arguments to try to, try to stump you know, people that take a pro-life position. And I've, I actually heard this argument. So the, 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 the argument against that is, well, yeah, well, if someone has cancer, you know, cancer also has DNA. But we're making a distinction here, like human DNA. This is not only has the potential to be human and will grow and will mature, but it is human. And so that's just something that science, that's what science says. And again, I mean this respectfully, but when people use the, it's just a clump of cells, just a fetus argument, that is a 30 to 40 year old argument that we should, that people should not use anymore because what we can witness and observe with things like ultrasounds and, and through science, we can see that what is in the, at the moment of, of conception, that it is actually a person. It is a baby. And so because we believe that, that we think, and we believe scripturally that all humans, they are made in the image of God and have value and have meaning and have dignity and that life should be protected. Life should be protected. Some of you have heard of the, um, the sled argument, the sled argument, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. So size, oh, well, it's, it's so small. I mean, just think about that argument though. It's small, so we can kill someone that's small? I mean, what a horrible argument. But these, these are the arguments that you're hearing. Well, it's not a baby because of how small it is. So size, what about level of development? Well, a lot of us in here, we have, we have toddlers. The babies, we have toddlers. They're still developing. They're not fully developed. I mean, how obscene would it be to think that, that, that someone would think it's okay to kill a human that's not fully developed? Well, there's a lot of little ones that aren't fully developed yet. Or how about this? Environment, sled, size, level of, of development, environment. Well, it's in the womb. Well, so your environment, where you live is what gives you value? No, absolutely not. Absolutely, the environment in which you live uh, has nothing to do with the value of your life. How about the, uh, the degree of dependency? Well, the baby's dependent upon its mother. Yeah, and so are all of my five children. They're all dependent upon us. And by the way, if God gives us a long life, we're going to reach a point in life that we will probably be dependent upon someone else. But does that mean we can kill people that are dependent upon someone else? No, absolutely not. And so what we see is, look, this, this pro-life position, it's not just a biblical argument, though I think we can make a very, very strong case for a biblical argument. 
that life begins at conception, that life is in the womb, but also scientifically. It's also a scientific argument that we say it's irrefutable. But what about the objections? And so again, here's the point, and I can't emphasize this enough. If we are actually going to be living in this world and actually have real meaningful relationships and interactions with people, if we truly have a desire um, to live as missionaries in the culture in which we're in, we're going to come across people that are going to bring up some of these arguments. And so part, again, as I said, part of my desire is that we would be better equipped in these areas. Now, please don't take this as like, I don't think you know some of these things. You you know, probably do know a lot of these things, but maybe you don't, or maybe we just need to be reminded. I want us to be equipped as a church. I feel that weight and responsibility as a pastor because it is a biblical and it is a moral issue that we can't remain silent, that we need to be equipped. In fact, in first Peter, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about first Peter three, where Peter's talking about, look, Christians that are suffering and people ask of you the reason for the hope. He's like, be ready to give a defense, be ready to give a, an answer for why you have that hope. But also I think an application of that is believers, we need to be prepared to give good biblical answers for all cultural issues of our day. Because God's word does speak into it. As you saw in the video from Dr. Michael Brown, he said 90% of pastors agree that God's word does speak into those issues. But so few are afraid to speak about those issues. So what are some of the arguments that we see that come up? Well, one argument we see all the time is, well, what about in the case of the life of the mother? Right, we see that. And again, there, some of the arguments that you see come up are very, very emotional arguments. Like, really, they are. And so it can kind of almost stump you a little bit if, if and me, if we're not prepared to, okay, have we really thought through some of these things? But first of all, when it comes to life of the mother, rape, and incest, did you know that that is such a small percentage. In fact, Florida actually tracks and, and keeps track of reasons um, why, like someone would get an abortion. They ask them that. The state of Florida does. And in the, the, the statistics show that it's between two and 3% of abortions are for those reasons, two to 3%. So again, I think the question is, before we even deal with that part, could we at least agree that the other 90% of abortions that are just elective, basically for no reason, that those are wrong? I mean, that would be a good question, I think, to ask. But what about in the case of the life of the mother? Well, to be honest, I'm not saying that there's not some situations that would be very, very complicated that we need to deal with that we need to deal with and walk people through and talk people through just even like on a pastoral level. Um, but do you realize that in the Western world that, that we're in, that doctors, I mean, these are the interview, like actual like doctors on this, that that's really never the scenario. And by the way, doctors, a doctor's job is to try to save and preserve all life, to save and preserve all life. That here in the Western world, it's, it's extremely rare. In fact, it's hardly ever an issue. 
And, and some people say, well, what about in the case for treatment for miscarriages or, or a septic uterus? Well, keep in mind, those are not abortions. Those are not something completely different. So sometimes people try to blend those together and say, oh, well, you're going to restrict women from getting that actual care that they need in those situations. And to be honest, the states that are going uh, to, to choose now to restrict it, they're not going to, women aren't going to be restricted from getting the care that they need in the instance of a miscarriage or septic uterus. Like that's something that's completely different. But again, doctor's job, doctors are to try to save all life. How about this one? This is the most popular one that we hear. My body, my choice. But again, I say this respectfully. Our argument is not that women can't decide what they're going to do with their body. It's the other body that's inside of them. We're saying, you can't kill that other body. Amen. And again, it is an unscientific argument to say that. But we hear that. We hear that all the time. It's basically an argument for bodily autonomy. But the bodily autonomy argument is what the pro-life argument is. That that body is, that's in you is an actual another person that has its own DNA and that that life should be protected. I mean, how crazy would it be to think that I could you know, go out on the street and if someone you know, cut me off in traffic or took my parking spot, that I could go and physically assault them. I can take my body, make a fist, and physically assault them and say, well, it's my body, my choice. I can do what I want with my body. Well, yeah, the problem is, though, is I'm harming someone else's body. And you can't do that. And that's our argument. That's the pro-life argument. That's the biblical argument that we're saying, no, you shouldn't be able to do that because it's another body. Some say, well, no, it's just a clump of cells or it's just, it's just a fetus. Have you heard that one? Some of you guys that watch Jeff Durbin, you know, you know Jeff's response when, when he's arguing with people and he'll, he'll stand outside of like abortion clinics and they'll actually offer to the women going in, hey, we will adopt your baby. Please don't, don't do this. We'll take care of it. We'll pay for all of the expenses. And, and Jeff's just one of those, those guys that's just, you know, Larry, you, you listen to, to Jeff's, like, he's just super gifted. Like he's just an excellent um, debater, but, but he's so gracious. He's so gracious. When people will bring up that argument, though sometimes they'll come and, and there'll be people that will try to argue back and they'll say, no, it's just a fetus. And Jeff's response is always, why are you speaking Latin? Why are you speaking Latin? You know, fetus, the Latin is a Latin word and it means small child. And the argument of, oh, it's not a human. It's just a clump of cells. Again, that is an old, unscientific argument. And so, again, I'm saying this, like, because a lot of the argumentation that you see is like memes and TikTok videos. And again, as Christians, I, I think that we need to make sure that our response to people is humble and it's not arrogant. But also, too, I think we need to be able to give an answer for some of this bad argumentation that's out there. My body, my choice. Well, the thing is, what we're contending is that it's another body that you're harming. And so scientifically, scientifically, that's why 
we stand on that. And then you get into the who would you save scenarios. Have you seen, seen some of those? Who would you save? There's a building that's got a thousand frozen embryos in that building. And you have another building that has a, just a three-year-old, one three-year-old, one three-year-old or a thousand frozen embryos. Both buildings are on fire. Who will you save? <laughs> have you seen those scenarios that people think, oh, it's a really clever. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's an emotional question. Um, but it has no bearing on whether morally and scientifically that those are babies or not. I mean, like, look, those of you that have children, I love your children. I would give my life to save your children. But if your kids are in a building that's on fire, my kids are in a building that's on fire. Look, emotionally, if I had to choose... <laughs> emotionally, I'm probably going to save mine, but that has no moral bearing on whether or not my kids are more valuable than your kids. It's just an emotional situation. And to be quite honest, I think it's a really bad argumentation. Again, I'm not saying it can't be one of those things that like if, if we haven't thought, of, thought through that or heard that, maybe it can seem like it really stumps us. Or how about this? Why can't you claim the baby in the womb for a tax deduction? Have you, see, have you seen that one? Well, I don't know. Ask the IRS. I have no earthly idea. But it doesn't, scientifically or morally, though, that's not an argument. You know, questions aren't arguments. Questions aren't arguments. It's like, I don't know. Maybe the IRS views it as, well, you're not necessarily having to put a roof over that baby yet or clothe, clothe that baby. I don't know what their reasoning is, but what the IRS is determined, they're not the ones that set the moral guidelines or scientific guidelines. We talked about, well, hey, if, if you don't like abortion, don't get one. Or men shouldn't have any say in the matter because you've never been in that situation of being pregnant. But, but once again, once again, like, We've seen that and we look back on history, the people that didn't speak up about other humans, whether it was the Holocaust or, or whether it was slavery, the people that didn't speak up. I mean, for some of them, they made those same excuses. Well, I don't have slaves. I personally don't think it's right. But yeah, we have a moral obligation to speak out and to speak into this. How about this argument? Well, life doesn't begin at conception. It begins at the first breath because Adam became a living soul. When? When he had that breath put into him. Have you seen that argument? And, and once again, it's a bad argument because Adam, God created Adam as a man. This is a unique case. This is the first man that God created. And again, I, I would point that, that fact out first, right? That was a unique case. This is God creating Adam as a man. But then also the, the, the scientific argument is, well, it's actually a person before they take their first breath. It's a person in the womb. How about in the case of, we touched on this a little bit, but, but what about in the case of rape? Again, that's an emotionally charged argument, you know, but, but again, I, I think that what the, our position is, well, let's make sure we're punishing the right person. In fact, in God's law, in God's law, that was such a serious offense that it was actually capital punishment in the Old Testament. And so our response is, why don't we punish, let's not punish the baby, let's punish the actual perpetrator. Let's punish the actual 
criminal. And as I mentioned, that's such a small percentage. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that we just answer that flippantly. Um, in some cases, I think we need to offer, in fact, in all cases, as a church, as believers, we need to offer help and hope for people that find themselves in those situations. And there's a lot of options that are out there. As I mentioned, like just, just, you know, one, and I think this is the case with hundreds of believers, thousands of believers all over that would gladly adopt some of those children. How about the argument? Well, the mother can't take care of them. I mean, think about that argument because what about, what about children that have been born? What about one-year-olds, two-year-olds? that the mother isn't equipped to take care of them, a father abandoned them. I mean, are we really saying that it's okay to kill the poor kids? I mean, what a, what a horrible argument. What a horrible argument. The mother can't take care of them. And, and by the way, then you hear this. You hear this all the time. Oh, well, Christians, you guys are only pro-life with the baby in the womb but not outside the womb, because you don't care about those kids and you do nothing for those kids. But again, that's just not true. That's not true. Did you know this, that specifically, specifically pro-life Christians are over two times more likely to adopt than the rest of our society and culture? And not only that, did you know that just about every pregnancy center that's out there is funded and built and ran by believers. I mean, honestly, as Christians that, again, I'm not saying that there's people that aren't believers that don't know the Lord, that they're not involved in it because there, there are, but, but primarily it is believing pro-life Christians that are the ones that are the most generous to the poor, the most generous to those that are in need. And honestly, I find that very, very insulting to think how much, and this isn't like patting ourselves on the back, because again, there's so much more that we could and should be doing. But to think about the, the tens of thousands of dollars that just our small local church plant here in Davenport pours back into our community, specifically to families that have greater needs. To me, I find that very, very insulting to say, well, we don't care about them. I mean, honestly, if, if we're going to compare, I think you'd find that it's Christians, pro-life Christians that are the ones that are the most generous with helping and taking care of the poor. It's the Christians that are the, the most generous. I mean, I think about even, even my family, the situation where I was, the family I was born in, I had wonderful, loving mother and father, but when I was born, my father worked for a small private Christian school. My mother didn't work. And we, for the first probably 12 years of my life, they, we lived on poverty wages. Now, I never knew it. I was happy. I was content. They always took, took great care of me. They never got a dime of any like, government assistance. Not that it would have been wrong. They just felt, they just felt for them, like that's not the route they wanted to go. And I look back like, Wow, we were, we were quite poor. Like I look back now and realize it, but look, we were content. We were happy, but, but for all practical purposes, you could have said, well, you can't, you can't afford to take care of all those kids. But again, that's such a bad argument. 
It's such a bad argument. And we as Christians, and I say that, as Christians, we need to be even doing more. We can't just pat ourselves on the back and say we're good. We need to be do, doing even more to help people, to help the poor, to help those that are struggling. But ultimately, listen, the hope is not found in just having stricter legislation. Now, again, it's, and, and I used the argument before too, oh, you can't legislate morality. And honestly, that, that was really unwise to say, because it's not a matter of, of if you should legislate morality, it's a question of whose morality is going to be legislative, right? And so as a government, we see part of their role in, in God giving that ordained role is to protect life. And so I think that there should be laws that protect life. However, that being said, as believers, ultimately, what our goal and desire should be is that we would see changed hearts, that we would see people come to know the Lord, and that through coming to salvation and coming to know the Lord as Savior, that we would see, that they would see that it would not just change how they live, but first and foremost, it changes the way we think. It changes the way we view life. It changes our whole world view. And that's what our desire should be. Our desire should be changed hearts because ultimately that is what we're called to do. As I mentioned at the beginning, maybe you're here and you feel a tremendous weight and guilt. Maybe you've had an abortion in the past. Maybe you've been responsible for someone else getting one or partly responsible, I should say. Listen, today, today my goal, my desire is not to bury anyone in guilt because there is hope and there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Amen. And, and Satan wants to bury you with that guilt of things in the past. But there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is hope in Jesus Christ. And our goal and our hope should be that we would understand the need for changed hearts. Because there is a danger of a Christless conservatism. Where people, they're very conservative politically but it's conservatism without Christ. Because without a changed heart, without Christ coming and changing someone, there's really not gonna be true change in our culture, in our society, in our homes. It starts with a changed heart of knowing Christ. And that's why as a, a church, we need to understand this. Now, does that mean we shouldn't be involved in anything as far as with, with having different legislation? No, no, no. I think that as Christians, like we can be and should be involved in those things. But we have to understand that it's not about just having more bills passed. It's not just about, about having our political viewpoint heard and seen. It's ultimately, it should be that we would see people come to know Christ as Savior. And by the way, my desire, my hope is that if these are some things maybe you've never really considered, maybe you've never really heard some of them. I think there's a great danger of just the, the memes and the TikTok videos as really our way of argumentation. I'm not saying that God can't use some of, some of those things, but really I, I find very little fruit, very little fruit in just um, in some of those those things. My desire, my goal 
is that we would be able to, though, be equipped to have these conversations with people, whether it's coworkers, whether it's family members, whether it's neighbor, that we would be able to hear the argumentation. And like Peter says, do it with the fear of God and do it with humility, but also be able to give a defense, be able to stand for truth and do it in a loving way. And I think that's what we're called to do. So this is an issue and a topic that, you know, maybe, again, maybe, maybe you think, why, why are we talking about it? Well, I think we have an obligation to talk about it because I think it is an absolutely a biblical and a, and a moral issue. And so we need to, as a church, talk about it. And my desire is that we would be equipped to be able to give answers biblically on why we believe what we believe, on why this is a big deal, why this is an issue in our day. But ultimately, may our desire be that we would see people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, because that is where true change will happen.